the fifth grade or younger, there is a service ready for you downstairs. And you're welcome to go at this time. I'd like to invite the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. I'm going to read 35 through 48 from the New American Standard Translation of the Bible. And I invite you to follow along. If you're using one of the reddish-colored Bibles in front of you under the chair, that is also the New American Standard Translation. And so it will be the same. Luke 12, verse 35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. And have them recline at table, and he will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch, or even the third, and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord... Are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. For from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. You know, when I started into the 12th chapter of Luke... And and just kind of was reading through it over and over again. I thought, wow, there are a lot of hard sayings in this chapter. And um, at first glance, they seem to just kind of uh, be assembled in a way that do not have a contextual flow to them. And yet, we start out the chapter learning that Jesus has been speaking to crowds that have come to number in the thousands. And then he turns an aside to his disciples and speaks to them for a while. And as we have been studying, there actually is a a flow, a theme that runs like a thread through all of this section. 
few weeks ago we were studying uh, Jesus' comments to his disciples about how to handle persecution. And then last week we were considering the, the matter of kingdom economics. Jesus teaching about personal material possessions and wealth and, and how we're to handle those. And, and he reminds us that at, at the most or the best, we are stewards. We're not owners of what we have. It doesn't intrinsically belong to us. We are stewards. The scripture asks the question rhetorically, what do you have that you have not received? And you may say, well, I, I work for my money. I work for my uh, resources. I, I, I've accumulated my own wealth. And then the question is posed, but how did you get your health? And how did you get your ability? And where did you get your mind? And how do you have the strength and energy to do what you do? And uh, who gave you the opportunity to be born here instead of, say, Ethiopia? And uh, why do you have the chances that you have? And when we considered all of those kinds of things, the reality is that we don't have control over very much. In fact, we have very little control. We just live under the illusion that we do. And Jesus makes it plain that we're stewards and that the one who squanders everything he or she gets on themselves is a fool. But the one who invests their resources in the kingdom uh, places it in a, in a place where moths can't get at it, rust won't deteriorate it, thieves won't steal it. It has eternal value because it has eternal significance. When we ask the question, well, how do I make those kinds of investments? The answer is, we invest in the kingdom. We invest in the mission. We invest in what God is about. We invest in the genuinely poor and in people in need. We invest in local ministry. We invest in global ministry. We invest in ways that will proclaim the gospel around the globe. We share the wealth, as it were. Um, and, and in so doing, Jesus said, you lay up treasure in heaven. So it very logically follows that if he has talked about um, putting our resources where they will be most effective and gain eternal significance, that he segues into this idea of anticipating his coming, of being prepared for his return. And that's what this morning's text is all about, being ready for the return of Jesus Christ, for the coming of the Master. And when we consider the passage, he's talking about living with an attitude of anticipation that he is going to come back someday. And we don't know exactly when. Now, when I have looked at church history and particularly the songs that have come out of periods of church history, especially in the last few hundred years, one of the things that becomes apparent is that people tend to think more and focus more on the return of Christ when life 
on this planet is not so good. When people are struggling, when life is tough, when the economy is bad, when jobs are scarce, when people are hungry or when they're oppressed or when they're suffering and they're believers, they tend to think about Jesus coming back. They look forward to someone to come and get me out of here. But, when things are going relatively well, and uh, the culture is flush, and we're materially blessed, and we have pretty much the things that we need, and we don't particularly lack for anything, there's a tendency not to want to leave. Kind of like it. Got the big screen Got the nice car, got the, the, the beautiful home, got a good job, I'm having fun. Who wants to mess this up? You know, why do I want to leave now? And so all the thinking about heaven and about the return of Christ and those kinds of things tends to recede into the background. Jesus is speaking to us in this passage not relative to our circumstances, but relative to an attitude, a perspective that lives with both feet firmly planted on the earth and a heart that is caught up in the heavenlies. That we are people, people of a duality, if you want to think of it that way. That we live in the world... But our thoughts turn continually toward the eternal and toward that which is truly everlastingly significant. That's what catches our focus. And it's difficult for us to imagine how it is that we're supposed to live like that. Because we tend to be people of extremes. We tend to either get caught up in the world... And, and, and the things of the world, or we tend to get caught up in some kind of saintly spiritual mindset that makes us, frankly, a little bit weird. And we have a hard time you know, living in the middle, uh, where we actually have a heavenly mentality but an earthly practicality that makes us approachable and sensible and like people that can shine a light in dark places and others want to come to them. Let me try to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, one of the things, I have a lot of interest. If you've known me any length of time, you've probably figured that out. And I read a lot. I like to read, and I like to learn things, and uh, so uh, among the things I read is not just the Bible, and not just commentators, and not just science, and not uh, just, but <clears throat> I read novels, and uh, I, I like particular kinds of novels, the, the, the genre of literature that kind of takes me into a mystery and a story, and 
And uh, when I find a writer that's particularly good, I, I tend to, you know, to want to read everything they've written. In fact, I have one of my favorite authors. Uh, I've now read everything he's written, and he's not writing fast enough. I always have to wait for his next book, usually for months. Uh, I think he, I think he needs to work harder for me. Uh, he should, he should publish more often because I, I'm, I'm frustrated when I have to wait another six months for a book to come out. But anyway. But in the course of reading the novels, I'm not just merely being entertained. I wonder, why do people write the things they write? What what are they like? What what is their makeup? One of the one of the recent uh, writers that I have uh, read, I noticed I started noticing in his books that he he disses Christianity, and he makes fun of pastors, and he disses the church, and I. He just never brings up the faith in a favorable way. It's not that he's a bad writer and that his his literature is just in the garbage can. It's not that at all. It's just that something has happened in his life and he doesn't like Christianity. It leaks out. It makes me wonder what's going on with him. It makes me wonder what happened to him. Now, I'm reading a novel for fun, okay? I'm enjoying it. But I keep seeing these things pop up, these little blips, that cause me to pray for him. Because I'm concerned about his eternal destiny. Never met him. Probably wouldn't give me the time of day. But I want to know where he's going to spend eternity. He matters to me. And I can't ignore what I see there. And so I pray for him. And he's done a lot of good things. He, he has over 48 million books in print and um, in multiple languages. And uh, so he's made a fair sum of money and he's started foundations. And one of them is a literacy foundation uh, to help uh, people learn to read and write and and one of his interests now has turned to writing children's stories. And he wants to, to get young people and children to learn how to read and to enjoy reading. And, and there's a lot of good things going on there, but I'm concerned about his soul. I, I don't hardly think of anyone that I don't wonder where they're going to spend eternity. It's on my mind always. When I hear the news, I, I think about... Um, how it fits into biblical revelation. It's not just the, the finance report or just the latest political event or the latest uh, drama uh, with the police down in Chicago. It's, God, what are you doing here? What's happening? How does this fit together? What are you saying about your world? What's going on? I find myself praying for people. I find myself uh, holding them up before the Lord, asking God to send someone into their lives to witness to the truth. When I look at the politics, I, I, I think about 
um, how, you know, we're very blessed as believers because we know how the book ends. We've read the last chapter. We know where history's going. We know what's happening. We should not be taken off guard by these things. We should not be unduly disturbed by world event. I'm not saying that we should not be distressed by people who are suffering, but we should not be surprised at the unfolding events that point toward the return of Jesus Christ. These things speak to us of God's unfolding plan. And so in the midst of all of life's very practical day-to-day experiences, there is a constant awareness of eternity. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about talking strange or being weird or not being of any practical value to anyone. I'm talking about lives that are lived that are solidly grounded but also hearts and minds that are eternally connected so that we live in this world in this tension between now and eternity with our primary investment there, not here. So Jesus, in making this transition from kingdom economics to His return, makes a very logical transition. First of all, your treasure's there, now your heart and mind need to be there. And if your heart and mind are there, you need to think about the fact that one day I'm coming back. And he tells a couple of stories and gives us some word pictures. He begins by saying, be dressed in readiness. Actually, the literal translation is, uh, let your loins be girded. You know, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but it made perfectly good sense to them. They understood that. Uh, They all wore, men and women, long flowing type garments. And um, you ladies that wear long dresses, you know, uh, if if you wear them practically floor length, you don't go jogging up the stairs. And uh, it, it's, it would be a little difficult uh, to run rapidly or to get any uh, serious work done with all of that extra material floating around your ankles all the time. And it was for them. And so they had a practical solution to that. They wore uh, a belt around their waist that was basically a long piece of cloth. And uh, when they needed to be ready for action, when they needed to work, when they needed to run, when they needed to to get engaged, they had a simple solution. They wrapped it around their waist, dropped a length between their legs, pulled their garments up above their knees, and then brought it back up and tied it off. And it girt up the flowing excess so that they could be agile and able to move easily. And when you saw someone like that, you expected they were, they were working or ready to work. They had prepared themselves for activity. They weren't just strolling down the street. And those who have their lamps lit, I mean, lighting a lamp for us basically means flicking a switch on the wall, but they had to give a little more forethought to it. They had to have the wick trim. They had to have sufficient oil in the lamp. They had to uh, have a lamp that was ready and prepared that they could light or remain lit. Uh, so that they could see in the middle of the night. 
They only used those on occasion when they needed to accomplish something after dark. And Jesus was giving some word pictures that they could easily relate to, saying you need to be always ready to work. You need to be ready to work whether it's daytime or nighttime, because the Master could come at any time. And you need to be prepared. You need to be actively uh, anticipating that. And then he tells the story about the thief in the night. And again, most of their homes didn't have, uh, they didn't have, none of their homes had tumble locks like we do. Uh, they would, could put a plank across the door to keep it from being opened. But uh, they were largely mud and thatch uh, type construction. And so if you were a thief and you knew the homeowner was away, all you had to do was um, get a sharp spade and you could uh, dig in. You just went around back where no one could see you, and you dug a hole through the wall. And all it amounted to was scraping away some hard mud until you could get a big enough hole to to work through, and then you could get in and pilfer the house and and leave again. And Jesus said, uh, if, if the master of the house knew the thief was coming, he could have thwarted it. He would have been prepared. He would have been waiting. And he could have run him off, but... You don't know in the middle of the night or in an hour when you think not, the return of the Lord could be like the thief in the night. Now, fortunately for those of us who are followers of Christ, it should not overtake us with quite as much surprise. Later, and I believe that this uh, dialogue occurred earlier in that last year of Jesus' ministry, but later in Matthew 24 and 25, in the last week of his life, he talked about the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and and some other things that were going to happen, and the disciples came to him and said, Lord, uh, could you tell us when are these things going to take place and what is the sign of your coming? And Jesus spent a good portion of Matthew 24 and 25 describing the events that would lead up to his return. And Paul tells us, and I've given you the reference, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 11. You don't have to turn there right now, but you might want to read it later. But he tells us in that passage that we are not among those who should be overtaken by surprise like the thief in the night. We are among those who should... Be aware, and it's obvious when you read 1 Thessalonians 5 that Paul and Luke traveled together, and I don't know, maybe they were even talking about this section when Paul wrote this Thessalonian letter, because clearly uh, chapter 5 of Thessalonians relates to chapter 12 of Luke. They're talking about the same material. And in the course of that, Paul said... The day should not take us like a thief. We should be alert. We should be attuned. We should be prepared. We should be aware of the signs of the times. And so, Jesus is giving us a message, but it's a message for those of us who are His followers that we need to live in a constant state of anticipation, of expectation of His return we need to be <coughs> people who, who have our minds and hearts in the heavenly realm, even as we walk the planet, even as we interact with normal people in normal circumstances, 
we should be those people who know that He could come at any time. And when I say that, I don't mean just eschatologically in the global sense, because there are certain signs that He gives us that will indicate His return uh, to this earth to, to reign. But, friends, and I'll come back to this in a moment, you and I could have Him return for us at any second. And we need to live as people that anticipate that the Master may come in an hour when we're not expecting Him. Now, all of this led Peter to kind of raise the question. He's sitting there listening to this uh, teaching of Jesus, and he's kind of scratching his head, and he says, Master, um, when you say these things, are you talking to us? Could you clarify this? You mean us, or do you mean the... You mean this whole crowd? Remember, there's thousands of people there. Do you mean the? You mean us or everybody? And Jesus does not directly answer his question. Instead, he tells another story, and he says, "Who is the faithful and sensible steward?" whom his master will put in charge for his servants to give them his rations at the proper time. Now, the theme had been uh, earlier on a wedding feast, and maybe, uh, maybe it is a wedding feast, maybe it's some other kind of event, but Jesus poses a scenario. He talks about uh, a man who is wealthy, a homeowner, but not just a house, a household owner. Uh, He has possessions. He has servants, more than one, men and women. He has a household to manage, and he has some uh, who have uh, been elevated to positions of uh, management among his servants, and he goes on a trip, whether it's a wedding feast, a few days or a week, or whether it's some other kind of business journey or venture or uh, whatever he's about to do, he calls this uh, servant over and he makes him the chief steward. He says, I'm going to leave you in charge. And I want you to take care of all the other servants. I want you to make sure that they have everything they need. I want you to take care of my my property and the possessions, and, and uh, I'll be back. Well, when are you coming back? I don't know, but uh, I'm sure you can manage till I come back. And so, this fellow, when his master leaves, he thinks to himself, Wow, I have a tremendous responsibility. I've been given authority to manage the finances. I can give the other servants their rations, their their needs, their wages, their resources, whatever. It's my duty to make sure that the master's household runs well in his absence. And he takes it very seriously. And he makes sure everything is done every day. He, He oversees all the other servants. He provides for them. He 
builds that esprit de corps, that camaraderie that a good manager can, can develop uh, so that the household is maintained. And one day his master comes back and he, and he looks around and he says, Wow, this is as well as I would have done. This is tremendous. You've done well. Get all the servants together. And uh, he says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on the servant's robe and I'm going to prepare a banquet and I'm going to serve all of you. This is tremendous. He says, then there's another kind of steward when the master calls him and says, I'm leaving you in charge. He's barely out of sight when this guy says, ha, oh man, <laughs> I've got all the money. I've got the slaves. The master's gone. This is my opportunity. And, and he, rather than building the trust and confidence of his colleagues, his fellow servants, he starts beating them. And he takes the money and he, and he gets drunk and he, he spends his time squandering his days and his hours and he's just living it up at the master's expense. The guy's gone, the cat's away, this mouse is going to play. And when he least expects it, middle of the night he's sleeping off a drunk, the master shows up, the house is a mess. The property's a mess. Some of the servants have run off because they got tired of being beat. The place is a disaster. And the language here is really pretty violent. It says the master takes this guy and dismembers him. He cuts him in half and assigns his portion to the unbelievers. And then he gets the slaves together, the other servants, and he says, You and you and you, you knew better. You knew that wasn't what I wanted. What's wrong with you? Tie them up to the post. We're going to whip them. And you and you and you, you really messed up. But you never were very bright anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't say that. <laughs> but I realized you didn't know what was going on. So I ought to beat you too, but I'm just going to give you a few lashes. So you'll learn more next time. And then Jesus ends the story by saying, The one who's been given much, much will be required of him. Now, now, this is an answer to Peter's question. Lord, are you talking to us or the whole crowd? Okay? What do you think at this point? I, I think he was talking to the whole crowd. In fact, most uh, scholars, when they, when they look at this uh, guy that was unfaithful, I mean, let's face it, uh, he doesn't... And by the way, this is a story Jesus told, okay? Don't, don't put too much weight on the individual elements, Okay? But the, the wicked chief steward that gets 
dismembered and assigned to unbelievers with a place with unbelievers in, in outer darkness. Okay, that most scholars think that that is a reference to the leadership of Israel. And remember how Jesus had said a little earlier back, um, you lawyers, you scribes, you have the key to unlock the Scriptures. Not only do you not open it for your own heart, you prevent other people from understanding it. You have the key and you keep other people away. In essence, what is happening there with this unfaithful steward is... God gave to the nation of Israel a trust. They had a responsibility. They had an opportunity to be missional, to to share with the world the the true and living God. And, And not only did they fail in that mission assignment, but their leadership was living like this unfaithful steward squandering the the privilege and responsibility they had on themselves. Jesus said, you Pharisees, you you just steal and rob and, and, and accumulate wealth for yourself. You're just out for yourselves all the time. So very likely, these are not followers of Christ at all. These are people in the crowd. But they're ones who have wasted their opportunities. Very likely then, those who are the faithful stewards are the disciples who have been given great responsibility. I'm giving you the message. I'm giving you the authority. I'm giving you the power. Go and proclaim and and bring the good news. You have a responsibility And if you are faithful to that task, when I come, I will prepare a banquet feast for you. And I will recognize you. Remember the judgment seat of Christ? By the way, again, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, we're not going to be flogged at the judgment seat of Christ. But we are going to give an answer for our stewardship, our trust. What did you do with what I gave you? He's away on a journey, so to speak. We're left with the responsibility. We have gifts. We have abilities. We have opportunities. What do you do with what I've given you? And friends, I'm not talking about coming to church on Monday night and working with Awana or, uh, you know, teaching downstairs in children's ministry or the nursery as my ministry. I'm not in any way suggesting it's not important. It's a vitally important ministry, but it's not the whole thing. You have been given opportunity. You have a family, you have a, a job, you have a neighborhood, you, you have a, a context in which you live and function and live out your life. And God has given you abilities and gifts. Some of you are good helpers, some of you are good listeners. 
Some of you are good administrators. Some of you have other attributes and skills. Some of you uh, have been given blessing by God. And, and you all have something. And the question is, as you live within the context of your life, do you live your life with one part of you in the heavenlies thinking about His coming and about our responsibilities. We have been left in charge. And the message is work for the night is coming when man's work is done. The marvelous thing about the kingdom is you can be working in the kingdom when you're resting in the planet. You don't have to be uh, arduously laboring. You can be engaging in a hobby. You can be doing some other activity. You can be praying for people. You can be talking to people. You can be everywhere you go. You are a light shining in a dark place. Do the people at your favorite Starbucks or Panera or McDonald's, do they know who you are? What do they think of you? How do you come across to them? How do they interpret you? What about your neighbors? Do they know you? What do they think of you? Do they, do they know where you stand? Do they know your convictions? Have you made them so odious that you've driven them all away? <laughs> or, or, or are you the kind of person they're drawn to? And yet, there's no compromise in you. You live with integrity. Shining a light in a dark place. Do you think actively about eternity? Is it a part of your daily mindset? This is what Jesus is getting at. Um, you've been given something. You've been given an opportunity, a context in which to live. Are you shining a light? Are you making a difference? Are you being faithful? To whom much is given, much is required. Are you being faithful with what He's given you? Are you ready for His return? Do you live in anticipation of that? Is that a part of your natural anticipation every day? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And when He gets here, I will see Him face to face. Are you ready? Are you expecting that? John, in his first letter, wrote, And we do not know as yet what we shall be like, but we do know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. There's something sanctifying, something that brings 
holiness into our lives when we live in anticipation of his coming. And friends, one day he's coming back to this planet. And every eye is going to see him. But one day, if you don't live to see that day, he's coming back for you. And we do not know, in either case, the day or the hour. Are you ready? Are you making wise investments? And now are you living with an attitude of readiness? Do you have your garments gathered up and your lamps lit? Are you prepared? Are you engaged? Are you faithful? That's the question of the message. Father, I pray that you would give us that uh, transformation in our heart and lives that would enable us to be firmly planted in the world, but taken up with thoughts of eternity so that we are a bridge between you and those who are without you and that we live as lights shining in a dark place. Make us, Lord, intensely practical and simultaneously deeply spiritual people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.